Welcome to Rusk Insights on Rehabilitation Medicine, a top podcast featuring interviews with thought leaders in the field of PM&R from Rusk Rehabilitation at NYU Langone Medical Center and other prominent rehab medicine institutions. Your host for these interviews is Dr. Tom Elwood. He will take you behind the scenes to look at what is transpiring in the exciting world of rehabilitation research and clinical services through the eyes of those involved in making dynamic breakthroughs in healthcare. So listen, learn, and enjoy. Hello, and welcome to another episode in the Rusk Rehabilitation Podcast Series at NYU Langone Health. These interviews make it possible to learn about developments in the field of rehabilitation aimed at improving the lives of patients. I am honored to have as today's guest, Dr. John Ross Rizzo of the Rusk Rehabilitation Institute at NYU Langone Health. Listeners throughout 2018 have had an opportunity to hear many interviews with exceptionally knowledgeable and interesting participants. Each segment is in the 15 to 20 minute range apart from the introduction of speakers. It is fitting, then, to finish up the last month of that year with a pair of longer recordings of an individual who is adding to the acquisition of a greater understanding of visual-motor integration. The eye-hand mystique visual-motor integration was the topic for his presentation at a Grand Round session at NYU on December 12th. Dr. Rizzo is a graduate of New York Medical College, and he did his residency training at NYU Rusk Institute of Rehabilitation. His current responsibilities include serving as an assistant professor in both the Department of Rehabilitation Medicine and the Department of Neurology, and also serving as director of the Visual Motor Integration Laboratory and director of the Rehabilitation Engineering Alliance and Center Transforming Low Vision Laboratory. He subspecializes in visual motor integration. Using his own experience in vision loss, he is at the forefront of vision research involving visual impairment from aging, illness, and brain injury. In the first part of a Grand Rounds presentation on December 12, 2018, at Rusk Rehabilitation Institute at NYU Langone Health, Dr. J.R. Rizzo discussed eye-hand coordination, or what is known as the eye-hand mystique. He described perception the ocular motor system, perception to action, and eye-hand control deficits as they relate to visual motor integration. Thanks so much for that kind introduction. It's always uh, great to familiar faces in the audience, so try and keep this as informal as possible and feel free to interject along the way. So we're going to talk about, you know, one of my favorite topics in the world, um, eye-hand coordination or the eye-hand mystique, as I've entitled this presentation, a little bit about visual motor integration uh, and stroke circuitry and, you know, kind of the black box uh, for visual motor integration. So just in terms of housekeeping, I do have some conflictual interests that need to be disclosed. Okay, so a couple learning objectives, which we'll blast through. We're going to talk a little bit about Perception, the ocular motor system, perception to action. We're going to share a little bit about new learnings on uh, what we call eye-hand incoordination or eye-hand control deficits as it relates to visual motor integration. And we're going to talk about uh, the rehabilitative implications and uh, next steps. So oftentimes when we think of visual perception, oftentimes we, we think of what's in the mind's eye. 
And many times we may dream up pictures such as this panoramic Im image of uh, Washington Square. We may be familiar with this. This is part of the NYU undergraduate campus right here in New York City. But I would argue that these panoramic images are actually built piece by piece, much like a jigsaw puzzle, as you can see pictured here. And we owe this thanks to our ocular motor system. So many of us really don't understand this and we take this for granted, but we are constantly making eye movements. These fast eye movements are called saccades. And on, on average, we make about three or four per second. So just to do the math real quick, that's 180 per minute. That's 11,000 per hour and 260,000 per day. So in rehabilitation right now and kind of avant-garde research, we're talking a lot about dosimetry and about task repetition, about what's important for motor learning and how many times do you have to you know, practice in order to you know, become perfect at something. Some people throw around 10,000 hours of practice or thousands and thousands of repetitions. But it's really intriguing to think about how many thousands of eye movements you're actually making per day, per usual, okay? In certain, in certain cases, these could be structured depending on the task at hand. So I really encourage us to think about task intensity, repetitions, dosimetry, and what I like to think about it in terms of eye power, in terms of work, eye work. So we'll come back to that in a little bit. Okay, so why make eye movements? Who cares, right? Well, the high resolution of central vision enables perception of fine details. So we're all familiar with this. We go back to medical school and we remember that peripheral vision has poor acuity. So the ability to resolve fine details. And this is a very common kind of visual schematic of our understanding. In the very center, it's kind of crystal clear, like a great LED TV, a 4K TV perhaps. In the outer periphery, it's very blurry. And you know, peripheral vision is more to catch sight of something and then infoviate, make those fast eye movements and to leverage central vision. We may also remember a fundoscopic view and leveraging some, some of that technology we learned how to use in medical school. I don't think too many physiatrists are using these devices these days, but here's a fundoscopic view of the inside of the retina. Um, and we're not gonna go back into the physiology about how the, how the eye works and photoreceptors and the different retinal layers, et cetera. But needless to say, if you actually look at the bottom right here and in, in, in the upper right, you can see that as you start to march out of the fovea, acuity drops off precipitously, precipitously, okay? And there's even structures within the back in terms of the foveola and the macula as you go from central to periphery in terms of how we kind of have evolved in order to get better vision in that central area. Okay, enough said. But really, if you actually look at the data, peripheral vision is not that bad. So this is really interesting. So the caveat here is that if acuity were the only concern, one would actually be able to read a page of text in a reasonable font size font size and at a normal reading distance without moving one's eyes. So here's a schematic that demonstrates that. So I want to pause on this for a second because it's really interesting because a lot of people think peripheral vision is terrible. So what's the key and why am I bringing this up? The big issue is it all has to do with visual crowding. Okay, so crowding is probably the most important limitation of peripheral vision. Crowding has a big effect in target detection tasks for a wider range of stimuli. Arrays of faces, oriented bars, letters, or colored circles. And for those who are unfamiliar with the concept of crowding or visual crowding, here's a quick demonstration. If I look at these three kind of letter arrays at the top, and you, you want to uh, gaze anchor at the, the actual cross on the right. And the top on the bottom, if you gaze anchor on that cross on the right, you can easily see the V. If you also gaze anchor on the bottom, you can also see the V. 
and if I spread out flankers like this x and k, you can still see that v. Now, if you gaze anchor in the middle and you try and perceive that v, it becomes increasingly difficult. And that's because I'm starting to visually crowd that v with the x and the k. So the peripheral vision becomes very difficult to start to make those perceptual, um, kind of notice those perceptually. It becomes increasingly difficult. Okay. But who cares again? Why am I mentioning all this? Well, the reason I'm mentioning all this is when we think about all this in terms of central vision and perhaps how it works in rehabilitation and how we think about action and motor control is that the functional translation is critical. And there are lots of ties to visual crowding. So let's think about some things as it relates to object detection. So detecting properties that are related to object detection depend on spatial contrast sensitivity and object properties like color and texture. Or what about material categorization, which is something that does not get a lot of attention in the literature right now, which is incredibly important. Things where the visual system combines estimates of different surface properties to make material categorization decisions. So in this picture on the bottom where I have a, a series of actually three different subtiles, you can easily see that this is a cloth kind of puppet or animal. In the middle, I have a cushion, a cushion and on the right, I have um, kind of a laced veil-like curtain, right? You can easily distinguish those materials, but how does that work? What's actually happening perceptually in terms of central vision? What do you need in terms of the central vision implications or the peripheral vision implications? Okay, so keep that in the top of your mind. So some researchers, um, Rosenholtz and Adelson, Rosenholtz has been doing some fantastic research at MIT, started looking at material categorization. Well, you might think this is highly complex and are we good at it? How does it actually work? So they had a bunch of individuals and they were trying to look at things. Well, well how do we distinguish color from orientation and how do we distinguish things like different material properties as we just did with that cushion, for example, or that curtain. And it turns out that you're very fast only about 100, 100 milliseconds more, that's a tenth of a second than some color detection tasks. So in this task, you're staring at a, a um, kind of a cross and then they throw up a picture and you're supposed to distinguish whether or not it has a certain color orientation or material. And on average, you're doing this in about 300 milliseconds. Now there may be a, an eye movement in there as well, but they weren't really focused on eye movement. So you might leverage central vision, but I would argue that this is really uh, put right in the center of your field. It's right in the middle as you're looking at that computer screen and then you have to actually make this discrimination. It's very interesting. So object categorization, like a glove versus a handbag, as you can see uh, visualized here, was faster for close-up views in, in, in a kind of a parallel study. Um, and um, material categorization, leather versus fabric, was faster for regular views. So they actually started looking at kind of your vantage point, how close or far away you were from things. I mean, these are really interesting implications and they relate to function. Okay. so. What are some of the take-homes before we kind of take next steps? I just wanted to kind of throw in some fun facts here. Material categorization cannot be explained in terms of simple feature judgments like color, gloss, texture, or shape. So this is not to suggest that these properties are not important for the task, but they are not useful individually. So there's probably some combination of them. So it's very interesting as you can see similarities here, but they all have differences. Like morphologically speaking, they're all differences, yet these are all different, yet they have the same pattern, right? Okay. Take home two, you cannot explain this based on shape for object recognition. In this top array here, we can very easily see that these are made of different materials, but they have the same morphology. These are all cars. You can make that in a split second judgment, but we all know that the top left one is made of metal um, and the far right one is actually made of wood, right? Okay. So 
How does this all time to come, come together and why is this important? Well, we're constantly ident identifying objects and material categorization is really important in everything we do functionally. So how do eye movements work when we're kind of walking around New York City in an average second? Well, I'm walking on the street and I might look to see which subway station is next to me. And that might be an actual saccade and a fixation. And then maybe 200 milliseconds later in that same second, I might actually look because I think I recognize someone. And then I want to actually see, oh crap, that subway station is closed, so I have to look at the light on the top. 200 milliseconds later, I make another saccade and then another fixation. And it goes on and it goes on. Within one second, we're doing all of this perceptual kind of all these, this kind of from a task standpoint, this task load perceptually in terms of eye movements. And there are all these motor implications happening simultaneously. Maybe I'm walking, maybe I'm grasping things. How are these things kind of co-registered in terms of time? So think about that. Okay. Don't take my word for it. I'm just Rizzo. I've only been around for a little while. Who am I? Right? Moderately good looking. I have a shiny head, it's a bit A-shaped. Okay, fine. But let's look at someone who's got a huge name, okay? So this is Al Yarvis's textbook from about 50 years ago. Um, and he looked at saccades and fixations in two seconds of time in Ilya Rapin's The Unexpected Guest. And his point was, you know, when someone actually looks at a picture, what actually happens in terms of the ocular motor system? What are they actually doing? And so what you can actually see is they largely were looking at the faces. And so they fixated a very unique thing. So it's fixation saccade, fixation saccade. And this was over a two-second time frame. And this was published in his um, later translated um, uh, textbook in 1967. Okay, so let's take a pause and go from perception and now uh, translate into action. So the rationale here, we have an ocular motor system, which is a really a control system for eye movements and fixations. Fixations are a high-resolution snapshots of our three-dimensional world. These fixational pieces are assembled and processed with categorization for perception. The key is that these fixations are tightly linked to action just in time in a, in a, in a strategic fashion. And these eye movements seem to be coupled, coupled temporally and spatially to motor actions of a particular task. In fact, the sequence of fixations is tightly linked to the task at hand. So I don't have to convince all of you that eye-hand coordination is incredibly important for sports activities, right? Whether or not you're juggling, well, some might argue that's a sport. Um, apologies to all the jugglers in the room. Uh, boxing, whether you're playing football or tennis, eye-hand coordination is pivotal, okay? I'm always astounded, personally, by watching professional ping pong. And I don't know if some, some people have seen uh, a talk where I've given before where I love showing videos of ping pong, but I love watching professional ping pong because I think the eye-hand coordination for professional ping pong players is always astounding to me. So... For your viewing pleasure, we have prepared a new montage for those who have not seen any of our, uh, let's see if I can get this to work. Okay. So you may recognize this incredible gentleman as the one and only Forrest Gump. So we probably, I don't know who's seen Forrest Gump in this room, probably dating a few of ourselves, but okay. For the younger generation, go watch Forrest Gump. It's an important movie. Um, so anyway, eye-hand coordination is really important. This is actually some training drills that individuals are doing where they're training with multiple balls and they're actually hitting specific targets as part of their actual training routine, which is pretty incredible. I don't know if you can actually see this juggling routine is pretty impressive in terms of the saccades that he's actually making to anticipate the trajectory of the ball, which is pretty astounding. And what we have here is pretty awesome. This is a recent video that was released by... Um, uh, GoPro, where they're actually monitoring the eye movements of a, of a hockey uh, goalie while he's taking active shots on goal. 
uh, which is pretty wild to actually look at his eye-hand coordination. Um, and these pucks are flying at you know ridiculous velocities, right? And in certain cases, they're trying to hit. Uh, they have uh, you know offensive players you know firing pucks at multiple you know at the same time, uh, which is which is really pretty uh, pretty incredible. Okay, what? So when we think about eye-hand coordination or what's what, what's happening, um, whether or not you're that goalie um, or whether or not you're a ping-pong player, um, I want to break it down in a couple of different components. So you know, th think about this kind of like a watch mechanism. I love watches. So you can think about it in terms of a planning requirement, a sensory requirement, and a motor requirement. So from a planning requirement, you think about the memory implications because there may be memory involved. You can think about the temporal um, uh, requirements. You can think about the spatial requirements. In terms of the sensory input, you have to think about things for both the eye and the hand, pre-movement, peri-movement, and post-movement. And that has a little bit to do with feed forward and feedback. And I'll, I'd encourage us all to think about the, the motor output for both the eye and the hand. Very important. A lot, of, a lot of times in terms of kind of information processing, people think about these as serial, serial processes. And if there are any questions, please uh, uh, interrupt. So people think about these as serial processes, kind of happening one after one another in series, right? But I really encourage us to think about it more in parallel. So imagine yourself at a garden and reaching for a flower. So you're walking and you have to perform some type of shoulder flexion, arm extension, there's grasp, there's prehension involved, but at the same time, you need to foveate on that target of interest. And that target may come with some type of risk. That flower may have a thorn right below on the actual stem that you need to be mindful of. So think about the foveation of the saccade demands in addition to the reaching demands and thinking about how that happens, environment, local scene, and close-up for the vision, and also planning, initiation, refining, and touch graphs for the actual reach, let alone the kind of complex multiple degrees of freedom that are firing at the same time. So co-registration between the two. So to dive in with more granularity, we can think about this over a time axis over kind of one second. So a reach oftentimes is, is longer than an actual saccade. Saccades are faster will land on target. So think about this in terms of the co-registration between these two effector systems as they're trying to fire or execute movements. Okay, don't take Rizzo's word for it again. Let's go to some data, not my data, but data that was published decades ago. So this is from Helsin's group where they actually looked at what happens when you try and do eye-hand coordination. Um, and they actually looked at both finger, elbow, and shoulder and they wanted to see what happens when the, the, you, you, uh, you completed a, a primary saccade or your kind of first eye movement on target as you completed or you actually looked at um, you know, these kind of typical movements for arm action, let's say. And uh, interestingly enough, you could see the acceleration profiles for both the finger, elbow, and shoulder. And you could see at about the peak for both finger, elbow, and shoulder, you land and uh, complete that primary saccade right in the middle of it all, okay? So think about that, the analogous situation for someone. Now this is kind of a, a limited constrained task in a, in, in a laboratory when they kind of throw up a visual target and they ask them to kind of reach out and touch, touch it, right? So it was pretty, pretty simple. But think about that in terms of you know, reaching for that rose in the garden. So you're kind of, you're trying to land on the actual, um, the, the rose itself with, a, with an eye movement. So you may be fixated on something initially and you're moving your gaze to that actual rose and you're actually firing that arm movement. It's very interesting how those two are synchronized in time. Okay, so in the visual motor integration lab, our goal has always been to quantify eye and hand movements simultaneously in different forms of acquired brain injury. So that was done in, in neurotypical controls or normative kind of control physiology and other neurological conditions. 
So this was a very disgruntled patient that we had a lot of difficulty running, but we ended up, uh, you may recognize her, but we, we ended up uh, prevailing. Um, and so this is our typical setup um, as we record uh, eye and hand uh, uh, physiology um, to really look at the spatial and temporal processing of eye and hand and to really look for any type of impairment. So um, what happens is people look at um, uh, different targets as they're, they're projected on a computer display and we ask them to make correlated reaching movements on a tabletop, kind of similar to what would happen during computer interaction. You can kind of think of this in kind of like mouse coordinates, if you will. Um, so I'm going to show you some data from a pilot study that I showed um, uh, some information on previously and then tease you a little bit with some of our new preliminary findings that we just were really, were really excited about and then we just put into a grant. So we recruited chronic stroke patients. It was a, a pretty, it was a cross-sectional study that was performed. We recruited uh, from our outpatient clinics and we did both um, eye tracking and simultaneously recorded their um, uh, motion capture of their, of their actual limbs. There were two different eye-hand paradigms. I don't want to focus on this too much um, in the interest of time, only to say that one was more visually guided and the other one was more of a memory component. The big differences here are that uh, the, the target either stays illuminated during the entire paradigm or the, the actual target disappears. So we flash the target and then extinguish the target and ask the patients to reach to a remember target location. Or what we'll do, we actually put the target on and illuminate the target. And then we, we tell the individual, wait until we actually give you a go signal and then reach for it. And that stays illuminated the entire task duration. So you can see that kind of um, target uh, uh, be being maintained as in, uh, in the on position in the upper panel. This is an interesting type of visual guided saccade task in that it's typically referred to as a delayed saccade task and is a little bit more complicated and has some more cognitive implications, which, which I can get into um, at the end if we have some more time, which I will try and leave some time for questions. So here um, is the time course. Overall, each trial was about one second in total duration. This is what it looked like for the memory guided and the visually guided. Uh, there were approximately 152 trials per experiment and 76 per block. So 76 for the memory guided, 76 for the delayed saccade or the visually guided. And here's a little bit of the demographic or the stroke characteristic information. The key is that they didn't have any visual dysfunction. So we really didn't want to have anyone that had any classic kind of bedside findings that you would uh, associate with neglects or hemianopias or quadratinopias. The age was on average 57. We did a pretty good job in terms of splitting sex between male and female. Handedness and hemiparesis, you can see visualized there. And these were all MCA uh, distribution strokes, which we either confirmed based on imaging uh, on report that we were able to obtain or also based on uh, history. In terms of chronicity, on average, they were um, about three years out. And these were pretty high-functioning stroke, largely kind of mild. We had initially aimed to do more mild, moderate, closer to the mild side, and the FMS scores were uh, on average 55. Okay. Any questions so far? No. Which hand were they doing this with? So we actually do both hands. Okay. Yep. Good question. Any other questions? So when, when you actually see the plots later on, you'll actually see more affected and less affected. So the more affected would classically be the affected side and the unaffected would be the less affected. Okay. So what did we end up seeing? So as I told you before, interestingly, eye and hand physiology is coupled during visually guided action, right? And, and I told you there's this co-registration, and I showed you some really nice data from Helsin that I showed the acceleration profiles of the upper extremity with primary saccade completion. And there, were, there was direct overlap, right? I mean, I think we would all be convinced of that. So in controls, what do we actually see? 
Well, even though the time was a bit delayed in terms of the reaction time, which we won't get into, again, this was, the visually guided paradigms, this did have more of a cognitive flair to the actual task itself. The eye, which is visualized in this kind of deeper blue uh, purple color, was tightly coupled to the actual reach. So onsets are, are circles and offsets are squares. The reach is kind of this yellow grayish color and the, the, the ocular motor is always this kind of uh, purplish blue color. So you can see in controls, we saw almost the exact same thing, tight coupling, okay? There was almost no difference in terms. There's always a co-registration between eye and hand. The eye did precede the hand, but they were tightly coupled and co-registered. In stroke, in both less and more affected, we saw this massive decoupling between the primary saccade and the reach. Massive. So you can see here, there's this big gap between the actual start of the saccade and the start of the reach. So this is when they would first look to the target and then when they actually initiated the reach, what we would call a decoupling interval, which we've tried to create a, we, we, we've tried to create a new metric around. And so you can actually see they start and stop the actual saccade and then they fire the actual reach hundreds of milliseconds later hundreds of milliseconds later, much, much, dis, you know, much different from the actual control physiology. And this is consistent between less affected and more affected, although there are some differences where the eye does start a little bit earlier and the actual reach, where the reach does start later. There are also some differences in terms of duration. So if you actually look at the, the, the difference between the, the circle onset and the square offset, you'll actually notice duration differences between the control reach and the actual stroke reach, which you would expect. Thank you again for joining us. You can learn more about Rusk at nyulangone.org slash Rusk. Also, be sure to follow this podcast on Twitter at Rusk Podcast.